I'm Adam McGee. I forgot how we start this. You start with an I'm Andrew Snyder. That, uh, yep, yeah, sorry, fuck that up. All right. <laughs> I, I didn't know, and welcome to Caption, let's go. Oh, God, I completely forgot. Oh, let's go. Let's do it again. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured on Celluloid. We're back. We might be a little bit rusty because it's been a while, but, you know, things are weird in the world and routines can get thrown off easily. So our plans from, I want to say, like a couple of months ago um, never quite came to fruition. We didn't get to do the, the Five Blood Spike Lee podcast, we promise, although... I think we'll probably do a Spike Lee episode at some point soon. So if you were looking forward to that, we will get it eventually. Um, but we're going to do something else first and foremost. But before we get into even what we're doing, Andrew, how are you? I'm well. I'm glad to be back. I'm definitely rusty, um, but we don't need to get any more into that. I'm sure that'll that'll all come out naturally as we as we get back to talking about movies again. Uh, the good news is, is that the reason that we are both gone for a while is employment luck has had turned around for both of us so we we, right. were, we were kept busy so it was a good problem to have but we definitely missed uh talking about movies and obviously from my standpoint it led to a period again of me just uh failing to watch things except some of the uh the movies that were getting a little more buzz that maybe we re- revisit a little bit down the line now that we're back to, to talking regularly yeah, we'll we'll have some stuff that maybe we'll go through. We may at some point. I think you've got quite a bit more catch up to do for to do it like a top five even of this year. Uh, but I'm not going to put you under that kind of pressure yet, Andrew. We're going to ease our way back in with a few episodes that I hope will be a lot of fun. I think this is this is a good one to start off. It's something we talked about from very early on. We talked about basically doing movie swaps where you'll pick a movie that you like, that I haven't seen, and I'll do the same for you. And this is also kind of informed by some of the feedback we've got since we started, which is people tend to like when that dynamic comes up, when there is a first-time viewing experience for someone, and you can get a, a movie someone really deeply loves, and they're introducing someone else, and it either ends up in a beautiful, you know, harmonious moment of mutual appreciation, or it goes the opposite way, and it shatters any kind of sense of captured and celluloid consensus. And I think we might do some of that today. And we're going to start off with a movie swap that is very much centered around thrillers, two very different types of thrillers, um, but thrillers all the same. Thrillers that have pretty kind of strong critical footing, at least now. It wasn't It wasn't necessarily always the case for one of these movies that it was glowing. Maybe one has aged better than the other. I don't know. We'll get into all of that. But we are going to talk about two films in particular, one from the 1980s, one from the 1990s. The film I picked for you, Andrew, is Brian De Palma's 1981 movie, Blowout. What did you pick for me? Adam, I picked the 1993 action thriller starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, The Fugitive. 
All right, and let's let's start this there. Let's start this with you. Let's start this with the fugitive. As I alluded to, we neither of us had seen the others pick before, and I know for me, blowout is blowout is an all time favorite. Ranks really, really highly among my all time favorite movies. I I don't think from our conversations before this that you were quite there with the fugitive. But tell us a little bit about your relationship or your feelings about The Fugitive in terms of what made you suggest it and how we arrived to this point in the first place. So it's a movie that I obviously didn't see when it was released because I was one years old. Um, But it's a movie that I feel like everybody knows and has kind of got this iconic 90s action thriller status. It's it's been parodied quite a bit. It was uh, based on a 1960s television series and I think is being rebooted now as a television series with Kiefer Sutherland. So it's it's some existing IP. It's that's... on Quibi is where it is. I don't oh. know if we can call it a TV series. Okay, well, obviously I, I didn't do quite as much digging there as I, as, I, as I should have. Quibi, I'm trying to avoid at all costs. But it's kind of a capital A action thriller that like made a ton of money and also received some awards love i mean it was nominated for i think six or seven oscars and tommy lee jones won one for best supporting actor so it's it's a movie that everyone seems to know and adam finding something that you haven't watched is the biggest challenge in any of these kind of exercises so i thought it would be a good pick for for, especially for that reason and it's a good pairing with blowout but the the really funny thing is how i came to this movie so as i mentioned it has been parodied quite a bit my dad is, was a big fan of comedic actor Leslie Nielsen, who's most mm-hmm. popular from the Naked Gun movies. So I guess in the early 2000s, late 90s, he was he was trying his hand at recapturing that old magic and came out with a movie called Wrongfully Accused, which parodies quite a few different kind of thrillers or action movies. There's some usual suspects in there. One scene that's uh, pulled off quite nicely um, that uh, we won't get into here, but... I as a little kid, I just thought that was the, the funniest movie ever. We had it probably pirate recorded on a VHS tape, and that was my for the longest time my like only association with the Fugitive. And then after watching that so many times, we eventually watched the Fugitive, and I thought it it fit the bill for what it was described as uh, a a fun action thriller with two recognizable and really iconic uh, leading actors, kind of going on a cat and mouse chase and a two hander. So that's kind of a weird introduction into that movie. Over the years, it's been something that maybe comes up on USA or TNT, and they're they're in the they're in the tunnel. So I watch ten minutes from there on. It's kind of like the the Bill Simmons uh, rewatchable cable movie is how I've always viewed it. So that's the relationship I have with the movie. Coming back to it now, it, it's got a little bit of a different vibe for me. The best way for me to describe this is an absurd high high level made for tv action thriller is how it feels revisiting it now it's not the awards bait movie that i remember as a 10 year old and that consensus seems to be i mean this is a movie with 96 percent on rotten tomatoes and gets articles written about it glowingly about how hollywood doesn't make character driven action movies anymore and Adam, in watching it, there's a degree that I just feel like doesn't hold up despite the fact that I'm having fun most of the time I'm watching it. I enjoy this movie the same way I might enjoy a Fast and the Furious movie. 
Um, but it is a little elevated because you're getting Harrison Ford and, and Tommy Lee Jones in particular kind of giving fun performances and, well, distressed in one degree and fun in another. Adam, this was your first introduction to the movie. Going into this, I had a feeling that this wasn't going to be something that was made for you and really made for modern pretentious Andrew uh, either. So, Adam, let's let's just hear your initial thoughts on The Fugitive, a movie that everyone else seems to love. I had a similar... I don't have a specific kind of pinpoint like you do. This is the parody of it I saw that led me to become aware of it. But I, I was certainly long aware, like even before I was as into movies as I am now, I was aware of The Fugitive generally what it was. There's a couple of, I don't want to say iconic shots, because that maybe even overplay some of the shots themselves, as much as like iconic stills, like Tommy Lee Jones in the tunnel. I feel like that's a that's just a, an image, a movie photo, like you'll see a lot. And now a meme. Yeah, and now a meme too. So I, I had a kind of extensive awareness. One thing actually that stood out to me, and it came back to me once I started watching, I was like, was there was there a thing? I When I was a teenager, I used to really like Scrubs. I was like, was there a thing in Scrubs? And then Neil Flynn, who plays the janitor in Scrubs, shows up and he is in the movie. And I remember there was a thing. So my relationship, having not seen the movie coming in, was just the kind of general pop culture zeitgeist. You know, it, it had infected my brain in a way. And I knew about it. I knew it's very much beloved. I knew it was a big hit. I actually didn't know that it was nominated for seven Oscars until after I watched it and I started to do some reading. And I will say I was caught a little off guard by that. But I came into it really expecting it to be, like, really good. That was that was my thing. I was like, this is a movie that was critically acclaimed, still seems to be loved, um, close to 30 years later, and was a big hit at the box office at the time two iconic actors what's not to love and within about i don't even know if it was 10 minutes of watching it i sent you a message and i was like i just didn't know it was like really stupid like i i didn't know it was the within a few minutes you've got like harrison ford a piece of acting that is really bad and i had me concerned for his performance overall which his performance overall is actually quite good but early on, I was like, oh, no, um, where he he starts to I, I should mention at this point that we're going to speak openly about both of these movies. So if you haven't watched them, there's a chance you're going to come up against spoilers. Um, but he talks openly about his his wife being murdered, not by him, but by a guy with a mechanical arm. I was fighting him. And then he kind of lets out a, a scream of anguish and a weird cry that is like, it's not good and i just i didn't realize it was quite as silly as it was like sure it's 90s and it's big budget but i i was expecting something different i don't know upon reflection why I, why i was expecting something different i'm not familiar really with andrew davis's work bar by name i i know a few of his films i know who's in them the basics about them but i haven't really seen them and yeah, I, I'm i not a fan of this movie, is the way I'll put it. And I think what's going to be interesting about this conversation and interesting when we get on to my pick, which is obviously a film I'm very much a fan of, is 
the way I view Blowout informs how I feel about The Fugitive, not just because we have kind of coincidentally paired them here, but because it it informs how I view action movies in general. And there's something here which just doesn't work for me. Well, I mean, we'll get into that some more. I'll I'll let you lead us through this and kind of with your pick and talk through some elements of it first. But I think there's some things that are just kind of there's a dated feel to this in terms of there's a kind of action filmmaking that we never see anymore. And that doesn't necessarily apply to even say, okay, Blowout as the obvious examples and we're going to talk about, which was filmed over a decade earlier. But you could even go to older movies too. And I think like there, there was a whole slew of Harrison Ford movies that I've caught bits of on like TV um, without having ever seen any of The Fugitive, really. And they seem to have this same kind of quality to them, quality not being necessarily the right term that I'm looking for. But it's something very different to how dynamic we've got used to action being on film, to what um, franchises mostly have done to how we view film. So franchises like Mission Impossible, like um, certainly the kind of rebooted Daniel Craig version of James Bond, like Jason Bourne. Then, I mean, if we want to go to other extremes, like something like The Raid, John Wick, there's a very specific quality to how action is shot and what makes a movie exciting and what makes a movie a thriller now. And I have to say, I found that completely absent from this film. And I was left with quite a lot of questions early on, not so much about the plot, but just about the structure of the movie and how, to me, it didn't make for the most satisfying viewing experience. But I'm I'm very much interested to talk to you. I know you didn't respond to this in the way that maybe you did in the past and maybe the way you thought you would, but there's clearly something that has connected with you with, with this movie at some point that I'm I'm kind of interested in because a lot of people have had that experience with The Fugitive and it hasn't really clicked that way for me. So looking at it now, um, I think where I was having the most fun with this movie is is in the is in the characters and in the performances mix in with the absurdity of the plot. Like a, as you, there's a John Mulaney bit about the very end of this movie that's absolutely spot on and hilarious and and really shows you like how insane everything that happens and how, the how you get from point uh, X to point Y. It's just ridiculous that I probably didn't even think about the first time I saw it. Um, from a technical standpoint, this is something we'll get into later, but this is really a movie that lacked of like a subtle touch, really. And it's not even because everything was so bombastic, but it, it felt almost like a Clint Eastwood movie where they were like, all right, we're going to shoot this giant uh, train explosion, but we're going to get it done as quickly as possible. Blow up the train. Let's get moving. There's like a, there's just like an awkwardness to a lot of it. Uh, part of that comes down to, like you said, it being dated in, in the 1990s, but part of it, I think it's just a lack of finesse from the director, Andrew Davis. I mean, if you go down his filmography, there's, He's made a lot of like Steven Seagal type mm-hmm. action movies. His, Under, Under Siege is the big kind of the most well-known movie, certainly that he made before The Fugitive. And I mean, The Fugitive is by far the one that he's gotten the most acclaim for and has 
career and he's he's not come close and then it, it's not like a uh De Palma where he's got <laughs> like a an, an absolutely sterling resume where uh even like even when it doesn't work you've got a, a master at work trying to craft something his is just very there and and feels like i know it doesn't lack thought because anytime you direct a movie you map out a movie you're trying to be meticulous about it but it definitely definitely doesn't come across that way so and and also i'm not someone that's typically going to be drawn to the craft of filmmaking like you are just because i'm not very well educated in that but i but it's something that definitely did stick out with this movie especially after watching blowout and like you said what modern action has become i I kind of think if you mixed in the 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 character driven nature of this movie with some of the the filmmaking tactics of today, you'd have a you'd be making a lot of really fully formed action thrillers at the moment. But they don't just they don't really seem to get made anymore, other than like uh, the John Wicks. I don't I don't know if that's true. Like I mean, they're one of the few genres that if you get it right, they'll pull big money, but there's an understanding of what it takes to get it right. And there's also now an increasing understanding of just how difficult it is to get it right because films like John Wick and films like the Mission Impossibles, they just, they, they're ramping up the stakes so high that one, these films tend to cost a lot of money. They tend to require the absolute best stunt people around, but that just also raises the degree of difficulty significantly that, I mean, for the most part, John Wick being the the prime example, I mean, you're now having, like, some of the best stunt coordinators in the industry have turned directors because it takes someone with that kind of technical knowledge of how to put a movie like this together to actually pull off directing. And I think that is also something very different. So I think there's some kind of different obstacles. Like, these movies, they make money, and they'll get audiences in, maybe as reliably as anything other than horror. I can't think of another genre that will still bring people in, but I, I always think it's about how you frame the movie. And before we move on, I found a quote that I actually, I want to share here because you've mentioned, um, you've mentioned the director, Andrew Davis. And I think this is something I, I found after watching it, but it was kind of bothering me while watching it. And this is bothering me. This is me. It's not something that necessarily will bother other people, but I think, if we were to talk about this movie within kind of the wider canon of action filmmaking or of thrillers, like if we're looking for ways to differentiate it from a lot of these other films, I think it comes down to something very simple. And then this may then also feed into an audience's taste as, you know, well, does that work for me or does it not? And right around the time this movie came out, the New York times did an interview with Andrew Davis and they talked to him it was kind of some of it was about Under Siege, which had preceded this and his experience going into this. So he was being asked generally about action movies and about thrillers. And I'll share his quote here because I, I think it is it is central to me to what The Fugitive is and what it might have been with a different director or how this panned out, just how it became the film it is. And to me, it's a film that is just really silly. And does a lot of good work in kind of serious areas, but ultimately I think isn't taking itself seriously enough because in turn it's not necessarily taking its audience very seriously. I'm the contrarian on this. Everyone else likes it, but hear me out. This is the quote from Andrew Davis. 
The basic underpinnings don't have any soul or value. They're totally incredible, so you don't believe them. They're dumb stories. People are unbelievable. People want to see action. Life is boring for a lot of people and they want to be excited. But if you make these, you've got to like the people in it. You've got to have some irreverent humor. Audiences want to cheer for the good guys and hiss the bad guys and really love the hissing. I don't think he is giving the audience anywhere near enough credit. And I think, certainly for me, that's part of the issue here. It's not like an audience only wants to see who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and oh, wasn't that a great movie? And I, I think the fact that at any point in time he had a view that, you know, the basic underpinnings of an action movie don't have any soul or value, I strongly disagree with that. I'm not even the biggest action fan. Like, you can make a ridiculous action movie, but you've got to, like, fully commit to it. And that was kind of my thing here. I think it's sometimes the story takes to a place that the tone of the movie doesn't necessarily mesh with. And certainly for me, the the actual filmmaking and the visual style doesn't engage with it. It doesn't come to a point where it's like, okay, if this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. How can we shoot this movie in a way that reflects it? Like, visually, it's not silly enough. It is Clint Eastwood-esque. I think that's a really, really great comparison because it is very by the numbers. It's not saying it's not just kind of very solid and well-made, but it's that's not necessarily the formula you're looking for for an action movie, and particularly a big action movie. Like, this movie to me, and it's something I'm sure we'll get onto in a second, it gets by on Harrison Ford. That's what got people in in the first place. And of all of the actors of, say, the last 30, 40 years, I mean, no one has been more famous and beloved for playing ridiculous characters in ridiculous stories than Harrison Ford. You know, it's it's not like, uh, I'm sure they exist, but it's not like there's too many people out there who are, like, going to bat purely for Harrison Ford's, like, straight dramas. You know, that they're only fans of when he showed up for the first time in, like, American Graffiti. And they're like, yeah, I don't like all the genre stuff he did. But Harrison Ford, the actor, like, when he's really given a chance, he's my guy. So I, I think the movie can get by on Harrison Ford saying crazy things in a crazy environment, even if it doesn't mesh with his character's story, because we're used to that. But for me, I think fundamentally, there is there's a gap, there is a disconnect for me in watching it between what the movie was doing, just how kind of ludicrous it all was, and the efforts the director was putting into, like, to punch that home. It's like not fully committing to just what you're making your movie. If you're going to make your movie silly, make your movie silly. Like, really go for it in every sense of the word. Yeah, that's that's a good shout there, because I think there are points of the movie where it almost tries to flirt with like this nihilistic view on the world where this man's being obviously framed for a murder he didn't commit and he the the bad guys are just going to get away with it because that's the way the world works. But that doesn't balance in with the ridiculousness of the plot. And if you turn everything up to 11 and, and, and don't worry about like trying to have this tone of darkness over every moment where Richard Kimball's kind of on the run and by himself, uh, you, you lose the plot a little bit. So I, I do, I do agree there. Um, 
and you're also spot on about why this movie was successful, and that's that you had a a, a star leading you through, and beyond that point where he's in the interrogation room, which I agree was uh, very disconcerting in in terms of where I thought this was going uh, in terms of Harrison Ford's performance. I think that was when I messaged you initially when I was watching this. I was like, this is the 90s, and also this is not living up to my memory. But from there on, I think Ford carries the movie during his scenes in a, in a very positive way around all the absurdity and poor filmmaking. I also wanted to shout out Tommy Lee Jones. He won best supporting actor for this role, Adam. And while this movie winning any kind of Academy award may seem ridiculous, uh, I I'm in full support of this one because he, nobody steers into smart ass U S Marshall that, uh, wants to be the swinging dick in every room he walks into and knows the right thing to say at every moment, whether he's right or wrong. I think he tapped into that perfectly and is my favorite part of the movie beyond Harrison Ford's performance. So you balance that out two iconic actors kind of in a cat and mouse chase. I, I was having a good time despite all the flaws, even if it didn't live up to my memory. Can we can we just briefly talk about the Tommy Lee Jones character and I mean some plot specifics? There's I mean there's a lot of things we could probably go into from different points in the movie and we may well jump back and forth. Yeah, and there are also some there's, problematic things. Well, this is this is kind of one of the ones straight away. So obviously, um watching lots of things in twenty twenty puts a different spin on them. So first of all, any kind of movie with law enforcement, I think there is a part of you which is just I'm applying a more critical lens. I'm not really making my mind up on anything one way or another, but I'm just like, it's topical. It's very topical. So it's fresh in my mind when I'm watching a portrayal of law enforcement from 30 years ago. And it's worth pointing out. I mean, not necessarily the good guys, this movie, but also not the bad guys, Um, which is something I find interesting with like, Andrew Davis quote that I read out there. This is a movie that tries to live in more of a gray area in terms of who its characters really are for large spells. Um, I'm not sure that entirely works, but what I don't understand other than the fact that the movie would have ended then is why Tommy Lee Jones doesn't simply shoot Harrison Ford really early in this movie when he gets a chance. And then when he hesitates to do that, and this is where it gets a little problematic, Andrew, he's later confronted with a black man who is holding a fellow law enforcement officer of some point, of some form, somewhat hostage, basically because Tommy Lee Jones and co. have just kicked in his door um, for no reason, (laughs) really. And instead of showing the same restraint and hesitance that he showed when, you know, the guy who had supposedly murdered his wife and was on the run and was the the whole kind of reason why there was a massive, like, certainly statewide pursuit going on. Rather than showing the restraint he showed to him, he just shot this this black guy dead. So I found that a little jarring in a contemporary sense, but let's let's even Let's move past that for a moment and let's try to put on some sort of blinkers that society has had on for the best part of 30 years um, in a movie since this came out and for a lot longer before that. And just work on that even as a character trait. What are What is going on? Are they, particularly with the end point of this movie and where the movie gets to, is like 
is that just that this is like some Batman and Joker-esque dance and they're both actually secretly enjoying it? Like, I have a lot of issues, not with plausibility. The movie's implausible, that's fine. Again, I would have preferred like the overall style of the film to commit to that. But this is a normal guy. This is a doctor who were kind of, you know... Yada yadded through a trial that doesn't seem like much of a trial. Uh, doesn't really seem like they held or considered any kind of evidence bar a voicemail left by his wife as she was dying. And he's just, you know, oh yeah, lethal injection for you. And this guy who was a doctor, very much respected, is now on the run. And not only are we treating him like he's the most dangerous man in America, but he is you know, he is suitably resourceful for that kind of status. He is Jason Bourne kind of levels of resourceful. And that to me was unusual, but not maybe as unusual as... It seems the number of occasions where, you know, Tommy Lee Jones really could have just ended this, and he doesn't. Like, that keeps the movie going, but if your movie has to do too much of that, that's not very good from my point of view as a as a structure and as a kind of as a way to write the movie yeah it's it's lazy plotting right is is what it comes down to and inconsistency with your character building because i agree that if he shoots him in the in the dam yes the movie's over but when we see the later scene it's it's a little bit of an inconsistency i don't know uh also, I feel like we were given, we were kind of uh, misdirected with that scene. They make it seem like they're going to track down Richard Kimball there, and then they go to the other guy that was on the bus's house. I didn't even know they were investigating that case. I thought someone else was on that. Uh, that was bad. And yes, the optics of that in 2020 are terrible. Can't do that. Don't like it. Was very but, uncomfortable. Okay, let's let's take the race part of it. The optics of it generally for the character in terms of what we've already seen him do and what we see him do over the rest of the movie. It's really inconsistent, right? Yes, uh, Devil's Advocate Go on. is is seeing someone else's life in danger rather than his own life. Something that 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 character might see as more valuable. He does. He's kind of a uh, a maverick. I I don't know that those types of people in those types of roles are someone that value their own life as much as they do the job and other people. At least that's how they try to present themselves. Uh, that's Devil's Advocate. Still, it is an inconsistency in his character. Back to your I'll point burst about that Devil's Advocate argument, by the way, because I think the line he then, uh, the partner who you know has just had a guy's head blown off right beside him and had a bullet whiz by his ear, struggling to hear after that interaction. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, the conversation goes something along the lines of like, "Why didn't you? Why didn't you kind of negotiate? Or why didn't you? You, know, you didn't need to do that." And Tommy Lee Jones in his ear is like, I don't negotiate, which at that point it becomes much more of a personal pride thing than maybe a putting others first. Yeah, or that's the false bravado, toxic masculinity working its way in where you can't let someone, you can't let another man know that you were worried about his life. You know how you know how the old ideals of masculinity work, Adam. It's an absolute. I don't mess. really, but you're you're a much more toxic male than me, Andrew. So I'll take uh, that, that is inaccurate. But uh, <laughs> well, I, I we're both we're both on the non toxic side. I may be more toxic just because of where I've existed. But anyway, uh, when it comes to 
the Kimball and Gerard relationship, I think that's a part of it that actually does make sense to me as the film goes along and a part I really like about it because I think as they chase him and as they're investigating and as Gerard Tommy Lee Jones learns more about his motives and what he's doing, I think he starts to recognize that, yeah, this guy is probably innocent. And I think there's a begrudging level of respect that develops, but it's also that sense of competition that, you know, I don't care what you did or didn't do, we can figure that out at the end of the day, but my job is to bring you in. So more toxic masculinity, of course, but there's a respect and an enjoyment of the cat and mouse chase that, that kind of comes down. And I actually like that. I, that's not for everyone, but I enjoyed that part of the film and their performances. If you were to kind of, not necessarily with genre, but if you were to classify this movie, if you were to give me like a couple of words or one line to describe the the whole picture of this movie what way would you go because i'm i'm kind of curious i i don't know if i know what this movie thinks it's about uh because it has a setup which to me i actually i did get aside from the early silliness i got intrigued by what it seemed like it was setting up and that's a certain kind of movie and it took an just an inordinate amount of time to actually get to even engaging with the notion of being that movie. And then it tried to be, and I was like, you just, you ignore that for so long that it doesn't land. But if you were to sum up the fugitive in a couple of words or like one very short sentence, as in what is this movie? What is this movie trying to be even on its own part? What would you be saying? Uh, I think it's very tough to do an erotic thriller between a U.S. Marshal and his fugitive uh, that would have been a much better movie. You're, like you said, it, it it is hard to pin. Uh, well, I because... think the line is going to be like, you know, man wrongly accused for murdering his, his wife ends up on the run and is pursued by, you know, that's, that's your logline. So to me, and from the way this movie opens, you're looking at a wrong man style movie. It's a wrong man style story. And yet it is no interest in engaging with the idea of uh did he actually do this or who did that or anything until like 50 minutes into the movie because i knew okay that this shoe is gonna drop at some point but i was actually checking while i was watching and i was like how far in are we now because they're really they're not interested there's not even breadcrumbs here this is something that i mean i'll, I'll end up talking about more when we get into blowout which i think is just a it's a fundamental element of movie making forget the genre we're operating in here um but it's like good movie making as opposed to bad movie making and that's when we get to the point where that element of the story comes to the fore and comes into focus in the fugitive we get these flashbacks um which i'll put aside the visuals of them i'm not crazy about them you got these kind of white flashes and the score is at its most hideously early 90s. Uh, we'll forget all of that. But you get these just flashes. And it's not its not giving you any real thing of story that we've already seen. It's giving you stuff that's happened off screen. Giving you stuff that's happened other times. And it's just like, he's piecing this together. So we'll now let you in on it. And we'll now let you try and you know get a sense of who he is. Where for me, if you're going to so soon after this movie begins if you're gonna end up with him in a courtroom like 
maybe set it up a bit more, maybe let people get a sense of who this character is, um, why they should feel anything for him. I guess people rooted for him because he was Harrison Ford, but although I knew he was never going to have actually done it because the movie probably wouldn't have existed then, I went through a lot of this movie being like, yeah, I don't know if this guy's a good guy, and certainly uh, he's very resourceful for a man who's just been a doctor, so is there some other stuff going on? What is happening here? Like, those parts of it just didn't quite tread together for me. And I, I'm i really kind of, I'm getting into picking at this movie pretty hard now, uh, which I didn't really want to do, but we have to talk about it, and I'm not crazy about it. But I just, I, I thought it was better than that. I thought it was going to be better than that. I expected some more. And for me, like, this is, wrong man is, if you want to put two two words, wrong man, that's this movie. That's what this movie certainly starts out to be and certainly tries to get to again by the end. But it does a lot of stuff and I think gets kind of lost in the middle. Who done it, he not done it, but we not going to find out who did done it. Is the the southern way that we would say all that, That is Adam. very southern, I like that. Uh, can I, can I briefly, before we transition to blowout, um, sum up the reason why the plot was set into motion, which is maybe the most absurd part of it? Just briefly. I just want, if you haven't seen The Fugitive, you can stop listening, but also just listen to it. We've already, we've already spoiled stuff from it, so, you know. So, Dr. Richard Kimball, uh, was trying to stop the production of some sort of, I guess heart related drug because it was like ruining your your liver or whatever and a competing doctor uh was trying to fraudulently like switch out samples and say that wasn't happening because he had some uh financial interests in that company producing this drug and so he tried to have him murdered and accidentally murdered his wife this guy also uh, rigged another competing doctor's uh, car to make it look like it was a car accident and instead that was also a murder and then Richard Kimball eventually confronts this guy at a conference in a hotel ballroom and they have this weird conversation while they're slowly walking like st- on stage and adjacent to stage and Can I actually just one other thing with that because Dr. Richard Kimball I think is a good character name right? Oh it's great but the other doctor in question is Dr. Charles Nichols. And he is played by a Dutch actor. And I I found the accent comes and goes depending on who he's talking to in the movie. I don't maybe I just imagine that. Maybe if I watched it again, that's not the case. But Kimball just has a sound to it that if I was gonna give one of these doctors the name, I'd give it to the Dutch guy. You know, Kimball could be Dutch. But the way the uh, Charles guy Nichols, says, my friend Dr. Richard Kimball is not feeling well, sounded so great. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, one thing with that, and even that just kind of there has given it a snippet of how action-packed this is. And even reading some of the some of the writing about this movie in recent years, um, a couple of years ago, there was a Vanity Fair piece, uh, Matzar Zeitz, the fantastic film critic uh, who primarily does his work over RogerEbert.com now. Um, he has a piece where he talks gushingly about this movie. He really, really loves it. And one of the things that I, I found with, in reading both of those pieces, and there was a couple of others I came across, is that there's a lot of talk about like the relentless pace of this movie and like the just kind of the momentum it generates. And I didn't feel that at all. In fact, 
I found it to be the opposite. It's got narrative momentum. On a page, you'd be like, wow, one thing happens after the other, after the other, after the other. But there's no visual momentum. There, there's no real change of pace in terms of editing. It doesn't really slow down or pick up at any time. Um, the diversity of shot choices is pretty like limited. There's not a whole lot going on there. So it didn't, for me, feel like we are moving maybe at the pace that the story was moving, if that makes sense. And it, it ended up that a point midway through, I was actually a little bit bored. And I was like, there's a lot happening in this movie, too much to feel bored. And yet here I am. And when I started to think about it then the rest of the way. I was like, it's just, it's not matching its its own narrative pace. And I think that's kind of, it's an interesting element to it, which again, I think very much comes down to the direction. I, I don't think this is, I don't want to say it's a poorly directed movie. I think it's a movie that a lot of other directors could have done much more with. Like he, he opens with these like swooping shots of Chicago and there's actually quite a few great aerial shots of Chicago. It's, it's a movie that's very much kind of tied to its, its city, much like Blowout is as well. But I was like, they come from the opening titles. We get some shots like that. And I'm like, this is like knockoff Michael Mann. And if Michael Mann was doing this, this would look a lot better and probably be a lot more interesting too. I, I don't know if the movie knew when to just take a moment to then allow tension to build. Because that's the that's the one thing I really came away is, you know, for a thriller, I never felt tense. There was no tension at all. I wasn't actively kind of engaged in, you know, will he be caught and the sense of the pursuit. because you know, he should have been caught straight away. He was a doctor on the run, but instead he's outrunning like these expert law enforcement guys. I don't know. I'm maybe being a bit hard on a film that a lot of people love, but I hope maybe even for people who do like it, there's some sense to what I'm saying, or it's kind of, it's at least coherent as to why I didn't particularly connect to this movie. Yeah, I think uh, the general consensus is is pretty glowing. Mine's a little bit, somewhere in the middle and enjoying it for for kind of weird reasons and yours is <laughs> below that before we transition to to blowout which is a far superior film adam i will say that it, it in my cursory wikipedia research here it looks like dr nichols was recast to that duck dutch actor a guy uh, died that's correct yeah so that's unfortunate also some some of the movie was filmed in the Great Smoky Mountain region of North Carolina. One of the things that I kind of pitted to you about these two different films was like a philosophical difference between why you make a movie, whereas The Fugitive is the let's cast two really famous guys and and make something that's going to make a lot of money and not be too super thoughtful or super super technical and and here it is. Whereas I think the things that you and I would be more drawn to is a filmmaker who has a specific vision and is like crafts a movie as like a work of art rather than just something that exists to be a star vehicle or to make money. That might be too broad of an interpretation of the, of these two different ideas. Well, yeah. Uh, the only reason I'm going to say yeah to that interruption, I think you're onto something, but my response certainly is it comes to blowout. But again, uh, if we're going to talk to Palma and we're in the kind of action genre, Mission Impossible also comes to mind. It's like, why not do both? Like, I mean, uh, Travolta had come off Greece on Saturday Night Fever when he went to do Blowout. He was really the biggest star on the planet. 
like in terms of a movie star at that point. So I I think you can have it both ways. I I think you really can. And like we've even seen that take this specific genre out of it again. Like we see that in recent years. If you make a movie that's good enough, like and you're a uh, a filmmaker that you know people are interested in teaming up with or has interesting enough ideas for that to happen, you know, you can you know, Leonardo DiCaprio will go and he will do uh, a film like Inception and he will do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Brad Pitt will go and do Ad Astro with James Gray. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I think that's how it was in the 80s and the 90s and is now is you actually can still have both of those things. And a lot of the time, actually, that level of craft and thought will attract those people. Um, like. In the case of Blowout, I, I think originally it was going to be a, a movie that was much smaller in scale. It was going to be set in Canada. It was a small idea that Palma had been working on. I think at one point he was he was kind of circling around Al Pacino to, to play that role. And he was good friends with Travolta. He was talking with Travolta. Travolta was looking for him to direct a project he was interested in. He called De Palma and kind of said what are you working on the panel's like oh it's just a small movie it wouldn't be the kind of thing you do anymore and Travolta said oh well let me see it he saw it he loved it and the rest is history and I think there's an element to that like something with The Fugitive that I was interested in reading is that the the stars thought it was going to be like career ending they thought it was terrible in the moment like Tommy Lee Jones really thought it was the end of his career Harrison Ford didn't think it was going to be a good movie at all or a hit so I I don't know. I don't I mean I can't speak to the specifics of how they ended up in that, but certainly I think you can attract those kind of caliber of stars if the craft is high enough and if you're someone like a filmmaker who's got really interesting ideas. Yeah. I and I agree with that as well. But I, your, just... your more general question I think is deeper than that. And it's it's more interesting as to why make a movie or uh, what makes a movie that people want to watch? I mean, that's going to vary from person to person. That's clear from the fact that I don't connect to Fugitive, and clearly a lot of people do. Um, why make a movie is something that I think when I talk about Blowout, it, my kind of answer to that, or what I feel is it's the best kind of movie from my perspective, is going to consider certain things or do certain things. But I'm aware that I come at that from a place of someone who has watched a lot of movies and has also been to film school and like read and written academically about movies. That's not the position everyone comes from. So, I mean, there's always kind of a, a spectrum of where people fall on this. And it, it is particularly with movies, but I mean, also like when it comes to books or anything like that, it's, you know, it's informed by, um, what your level of engagement is, how deeply you want to engage with it, and also, you know, what's your what's your wider knowledge base? What are you comparing it to? And it kind of that's with any kind of art form. That's the real one of the joys of it is the deeper you get, um, your view on things can change, and you can end up reassessing other things. But I mean, for me personally, I like to see a movie that it engages with why is it being made? And if we're making this story, why are we making it as a movie? Like, why is it a movie? Why isn't it a play? Why isn't it 
like a podcast in contemporary terms you know why isn't it a video game why is this a movie first and foremost and then how do we best make this as a movie to amplify this particular story to really make the most of this story that is something that i think i've certainly come to over time as i've grown more and more interested in film and as i've come to study it deeper and deeper but that's that for me is the perspective of how you make a movie and i I think often if you do that um i'm curious not just to hear you because i think you'll fall down generally on the same kind of wavelength to me with blowout and and brief preliminary discussions we've had i think it does come that way but also from people listening if they get in touch people who haven't seen blowout before i think a lot of what i'll talk about with blowout will be stuff that particularly first time watching it no one cares about or thinks about the average viewer is not going to come to the film looking to even consider those elements or take it in on those terms. And even someone like me, I wouldn't have the first time, but I think it's a film that's exceptionally entertaining, which should be, you know, first and foremost, that's what you've got to do. You've got to make the best film you can make, but then why is it entertaining? How is it doing it? And that's where you can really kind of, you can find an extra level of greatness. And when you start to understand, well, why does that work? What exactly is it doing? Um, there could be an extra kind of level of satisfaction out of there too for a viewer. Yeah, and I I think you hit the nail on the head in that someone like me watching it for the first time, I mean, it's, what is it, getting close to 40 years old and it's something that wasn't even on my radar and seeing it, I was was kind of blown away. I mean, you'd been talking it up to me uh, for months now. My brother had been on uh, (laughs) a lower end of the spectrum. So I came into it with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. So really had had no idea what to expect when I'm getting two different reviews from two people I uh, respect and are much smarter than me. But it, it's a movie to me that like it, it just shows so much intent in every shot and in every scene. There's a, there's a very active camera. There's a very meticulously thought out plot. And obviously it's a movie about sound and a sound guy. And the sound is just um, kind of, like ridiculously detailed and i think i'm not usually drawn to those sorts of aspects of filmmaking just because i said earlier i'm not i'm not a i didn't go to film school i'm not a a a very technical person when it comes to watching these movies but that jumped out immediately and some things we'll talk about later with some of the i guess techniques and what De palma thinks about the camera's role we'll get into that but it's something that I can be blown away with all those different aspects, especially, you know, after years of talking to you and learning more and more about the craft of making movies. But it's also just a really entertaining movie with a kind of absurd plot in terms of like what happens and what it's about. But more than absurd, it's really just like what what taking yourself out of reality and going into a movie world can be about when it's done really well. And something that's really interesting and and kind of like topical <laughs> at the moment, based on uh, some of the kind of political things. But it's just I, I, I you said you kind of shot me down when I was shocked that this movie was a box office bomb because mm-hmm. I thought it was just incredibly accessible for mainstream movie fans, along with having things that um like film film uh, aficionados like you would be drawn to. Yeah, it's just it's it's brutal it's a gut punch i mean that's the thing where this movie ultimately goes it's a dark movie overall um but 
I think it's also, you've got to think, not that Saturday Night Fever is a walk in the park, but Travolta also would have had a certain kind of uh, following at that point from Greece and Saturday Night Fever. Um, and then you've got this. Like, I, I think early word of mouth from those kind of fans would not have been good. It's like, uh, I'm trying to think of... I, I've actually, you know, I've got a good example. It would be like, say, Rob, Robert Pattinson post-Twilight when he then pivots to, say, I don't know, Cosmopolis with David Cronenberg. And there's lots of, like, young teenagers who, like, adore Robert Pattinson. And they're like, yeah, Robert Pattinson's our guy. We're here for anything he does. And then they buy a ticket and they go to Cosmopolis. They're like, okay, maybe we're not here for anything he does. I think there's that kind of quality to it with Travolta. And I think interestingly, and it's something we'll get into probably when we talk about Travolta later, um, he steers more back towards a a safer path. I, I think the rest of his career doesn't include as many moments like this and when it does, it's like it's bold filmmaker kind of bringing him back in from the cold somewhat to do it, like say Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. I think there's there's a kind of an interesting thing with okay, what was his career? What is his career at this point? As in 1981, when he's at the absolute peak of his power and he's saying, "I want to work with an artist like Brian De Palma. I want to make a movie like this," and then what becomes later. So I think that's interesting. But before I get into, we'll talk more about Travolta and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff here. Before I just get into being a complete movie asshole, can I briefly, and I don't like doing this, so it is going to be brief, but can I kind of give a personal introduction to this so that people aren't just like, okay, this guy is, you know, yeah, you like movies, we get it. Okay, you've you've got it decent knowledge of movies and you've studied film okay you're gonna tell us about it in this sense and that sense and that's not really what i care about as you know someone at home who fires up prime or netflix just turn this on be entertained for the best part of two hours and then get on with my life can i take a moment just to set the table adam it's your podcast you can it's, do whatever the fuck you our, want it's our podcast that's why i'm asking you uh, well, but, I'm at, hold on what, before you do that i'm gonna say you're in you're insulting me by suggesting that you only have a decent knowledge of movies you have a great knowledge of movies continue people with far superior knowledge of movies i'm aware of that at all times i i have liked brian De Palma's movies for quite a while but when i say i've liked brian De Palma's movies i've liked them in a i saw carrie i saw uh scarface i saw the untouchables kind of I think movies that most people have seen, some of his most kind of mainstream crossover movies, movies that even for film fans are considered to be kind of canon, but not in a like deep dive way. They're, they're films that, sure, they resonate with kind of hardcore cinephiles, but they're also more kind of broadly known as well. So as I've kind of built up my my love of film and kind of gone on these journeys as I do, where you try to get to know different filmmakers... I mean, you learn a lot about the new Hollywood era and a lot of these directors. And I mean, everyone knows about Scorsese and goes down that rabbit hole. And then you've got the likes of Spielberg and Lucas and you've got Francis Ford Coppola. And of that kind of immediate group, of that five, the Palma is kind of the weirdest. Or he certainly 
often painted that way. He is the voyeur. His films are the most perverse, transgressive, frequently perverted. And I think there can be something about the Palma if you know a bit about like the kind of the conversation, the discourse around him, that it's very easy to be like, yeah, you know, I'm not like that. He's not the guy for me. Where the truth of it is actually, the Palma is, he's right up there with the most well-rounded filmmaker of that grouping because he goes to extremes in a way that like Spielberg does as well. Like you tend to treat them as very different people. I just think the Palma never quite, move towards the younger audience in the way that Spielberg did, but in terms of let's make something that's, you know, my thing over here, and then let's make something that's really mass appeal, they both do that. So, more recently, as I've dived deeper and deeper into film, the thing that I've really become obsessed with, and I think I've mentioned this in episodes before, is, like, film style, and it's cinematography, and it's editing, and it's it's really the nuts and bolts of, okay, we're making this movie, and we want it to look like this. How does that happen? Why does that happen? And just kind of the theory behind how that works. And last year I did a dissertation. It featured very heavily on the ideas of editing and film style. And it was at that point that the Palma came up a lot. And in research, I'd keep coming across the Palma. And then I started to read some stuff. And some of his quotes were the best, just in terms of structure, just in terms of why you make decisions. And I watched the great uh, documentary, The Palma, uh, directed by Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow, widely available. Um, Certainly it's on Netflix in the US and it's not hard to find really anywhere else either. And that kind of is a whistle-stop tour through his career, through why he's important, why he's different as a filmmaker. And you get that and you get him himself and he's he's a great quote. Like, like him or hate him. Brian De Palma, really good quote. And with that, I was kind of like, I need to really do this. I need to go and dive in. So, like, in the future, when people ask me about the year 2020, first and foremost, I will say, oh, that was the year that I fell in love with Brian De Palma. And secondly, it was the year of the coronavirus, because that is a big part of what I've spent my last few months doing. And one of the first steps on that was blowout. And the thing with De Palma is... The Palmas movies are frequently ridiculous. I mean, some of the most just absurd plot-wise. I mean, you you already use the term absurd for this movie, but it doesn't scratch the surface compared to some of the stuff that's like in Body Double or uh, Snake Eyes or really countless movies. His films are ridiculous, but he is always in control not always getting like the perfect result, not always making the best movie that anyone's ever seen, but he's always making really purposeful decisions where the style informs the content and really the two are one. And this is something that over time I've come to realize this is, this is what I like most in a movie. What I like most in a movie is I want a great script. I want a movie that sure it's just kind of really well told or it might make me laugh and make me cry, whatever it is. The story is essential, but what makes a film a film is the fact that this is moving picture and this is sound. So that's got to inform and just be a kind of an intrinsic part of that story. If you're going to make a movie, you've got to tell your stories visually. And De Palma does that about as well as any director this side of Hitchcock, who is his hero, who he regularly steals from, and I think has 
really become an innovator in his own right off the back of trying to figure out how can I use the technology that's at my disposal and go one step further. So to just set this up, I come to this as very much like an avowed Brian De Palma disciple at this point. I will be higher on his movies than others. And having said that, I think this is his best movie. This is like the ultimate form of Brian De Palma. Um, This is all of the signatures and hallmarks, some of which we'll get into in a moment. They are here and they're best realized in a way that makes assholes like me, like ooh and ah at the, the craft involved, at the technique. And that will just kind of blow audiences away in just the general experience of watching the movie. So I have really deeply connected with this movie. I watch it with strange regularity. It's bordering on an obsession I have with this film at this point, which is appropriate for any Brian De Palma movie. It's a key team. But that's kind of setting the table here. And I think it's for people who aren't familiar with him, and he is someone who at some point I would love to do more podcasts on. I don't think we could do a general one because I joked at Andrew during the week. Andrew would have to watch all 40 of his movies and it would go on for somewhere in the region of 100 hours as an episode. But maybe along the way, we can kind of dive in and out here or there, because I just think, as a filmmaker, he's really interesting. And he's really interesting not just because of maybe a movie like Blowout, not as most obscure, but a movie that not everyone might know, but people do know Carrie, and they do know Scarface, and they do know Mission Impossible and Carlito's Way. Like, this is someone who has gone into the system, uh, not without friction, but made like core mainstream classic movies. And he's made them in entirely his own way, injected them with his style. And it's kind of just become a part of the way that wider audiences, casual audiences even view and understand movies, that they don't question certain shot types or they're not just taken out of it by techniques that not a lot of mainstream filmmakers were using before the Palma. So that's my general overview where I kind of set this up and be like, yeah, I am, I'm kind of in the bag here for the Palma, but I do trying to distance myself. I think this is his most perfect movie. And I think it's a movie that I'd be surprised if too many people don't like it at all on first viewing, but it really rewards repeat viewing because it's about as well constructed in every sense, technically, as a script, just as a complete work as any film you'll ever see. I've now done the thing that I did to you, Andrew, which is I've I've overhyped it. And if anyone is listening without having watched it yet, I've probably set myself up and them up for disappointment. If anyone wants to talk to my brother, Jordan Snyder, to have them balance out before that. Oh, I'll uh, talk to Jordan. I'll convert Jordan. That's, that's what will happen there. Yeah, he'll, he'll buckle to the pressure, that's for sure. I'll speak a, a little bit not long on De Palma he's a director where I think that's he's so prolific that it's understandable for someone like me who's not the film student and film master now I should say um to have like gaps in his resume that I haven't gotten to and those gaps are pretty large now I mean I've, I've seen now blowout Scarface the untouchables car or mission impossible and then I, pro- I think I saw the black dahlia um but Harry? and all Yes, Carrie, Carrie, back in, back in the day as well. So a lot of gaps there. I've also seen the Dancing in the Dark music video for Bruce Springsteen when <laughs> when Courtney Cox jumped on stage and danced with him. So great video. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. And so that's my experience with the Palma. And 
I will say, Adam, that of the ones I've seen, I think it's his best. And I also think, to your point, as we'll get into here probably, I think it might be the best entry point. Yeah, I think so. Um, because you will see all of his showmanship. Like, it's it's all here. But it's never just kind of outlandishly style for the sake of style in this movie where it can be in some of his other films. And we'll get into talking about split screen, a favor of the poem. We'll get into talking about split diopters, uh, which is something I've always deeply loved. I don't know. Your general familiarity with split diopters before Blowout? Um, yes. I can't remember which film, but yes. Oh, we actually talked about this before, didn't we? I know we did, because I can think of one notable film that we've talked about, and I probably bored you about this with this at the time. And that's All the President's Men has a really famous split-diopter shot in the newsroom. Yes, back back in the OG days. In the OG days. Anyway, we'll get into that, and I'll explain those terms just for anyone who may not be familiar. But you will know, once I described if you've watched the movie you will then be able to identify, yeah, that did look a little bit different. Oh, that's what that is, and that's how that works. But yes, I think this is the palm at his best. And the thing that, like, for all of his reputation as kind of a, a shock artist, uh, which I personally feel from a lot of his movies is overplayed. There are certainly, I'm not saying there aren't shocking elements of Brian De Palma movies, uh, certainly true at 2020 lens. But... I, I think the thing that has always kind of, as I've worked my way through his filmography, that jumps out to me is detail. And this is the ultimate movie about it. Because this is not just a thriller, like we've talked about this as a pairing of thrillers, this is very much a conspiracy thriller. And on that front, you get a lot of kind of interesting ideas that the Palma is playing with. So, first and foremost, to give a brief kind of outline of the story, John Travolta stars as a sound guy who works for an independent uh, production company that makes very schlocky B-movie horror kind of stuff. And the movie opens up with him in the studio with a director, producer, uh, not exactly sure what his role is, but, you know, someone involved in not just this movie, but a whole stream of movies for this company that he's worked with regularly. And they have a conversation about the kind of sounds that are captured. Um, he's tired of the library sounds that he's been using over and over again. And he orders Jack, the character played by Travolta, out to record some new wind. So as any kind of sound artist, as any kind of Foley uh, artist would do, Travolta sets out in his way and he goes out with his microphone and he starts to record sounds and while recording sounds he hears first of all and this is probably something a key distinction to make throughout is that rather than he sees this is going to be he hears throughout this movie he hears a car coming on the road the car screeches the car goes over basically a cliff's edge and into the water where he dives in to find the man in the front seat dead and a woman struggling in the back seat who he breaks the window, rescues her, and sets the plot in motion. Uh, the man in question in the front seat is a governor, um, who is later described as the next president of the United States. So we essentially have an assassination, and from the beginning we have people try to uh, quiet Jack, the character played by John Travolta, as well as Sally, the character played by Nancy Allen, who was in the car with the governor at the time. 
So from there, Travolta starts to piece together what actually happened. And for movie fans, I mean, the title might hint at this. Obviously, it is, you know, the eponymous blowout that sees the car go into the water. But this is also De Palma making a movie that is a combination of Blow Up, the Michelangelo Antonioni movie, about photography, uh, really kind of some similar, very similar shape to the movie in some senses, but with it being, you know, the background of a photograph as opposed to anything else. And then also De Palma's drawing from the film made by his friend, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, The Conversation, which is entirely about sound some of the best sound work ever by walter merch on that movie if people haven't seen the conversation it it might actually be the palma's best or not the palma coppola's best like i'm gonna whisper that andrew because you know the godfather and i'm not gonna i'm not disparaging the godfather in any way adam if you want me to buy that wine and just ship you the empty bottles i can uh, do that as well let's not talk about that i might do that 800 dollars, people you can get a signed copy of the script and a lot of uh, Francis Ford Coppola wine but this is the Palma taking the conversation and taking blow up combining them together as two great ideas and in doing so we have this conspiracy that John Travolta's character is going to try and piece together um, he has the sound of the incident later photos of the incident get printed in a magazine very much like the Sapruder film was printed in Life magazine this is very heavily inspired by JFK's assassination Chappaquiddick events like that so to tell this story then the Palma he takes okay we've got audio and then we also end up with image and he stitches them together to a point where this becomes a conspiracy movie that is told through the process of filmmaking and the kinds of ins and outs of it. And it's engaging with it in a really, really interesting way. So for people who aren't familiar, and it's not just like if you're not into movies, like this includes people like me who really are into movies, but no longer have the luxury of working on analog. When you get to see uh, John Travolta working with like old fashioned tape editing and syncing to the picture it's it's a kind of it's a process that De Palma takes a lot of time with and he shows a lot of care and it is kind of a meticulousness but what's most interesting I think what sets up overall what this movie is doing and the idea of it is he wants the audience to be involved and he makes the movie in a way that it's laying out what its structure is what its ideas are but it's also bringing you along with the characters at every point you're never behind them you're never behind them. You're certainly never behind Travolta. And your parcel information, like this is something I mentioned with The Fugitive, where it's like, it's one movie, you know it's going to be that movie, but it's like an hour in, and you're like, it hasn't done it yet. We're not getting to, like, okay, he didn't kill him, but who did and what happened? Like, this film parcels information out much earlier than that, and it generally does it uh, when the protagonist, Jack, finds out for himself too. So what the Palma does is he uses all these different techniques in film to make it a really active viewing experience so that you are listening with Travolta from the moment when the actual accident happens. You are listening. You are following along uh, with his microphone to then meet the image. You are having to engage with the film on the kind of level that you actually engage with a movie when you're watching it. And this is something that, like, 
on the one hand sounds a little bit kind of tedious and a little bit radical but i think the ultimate trick of this film is it's completely seamless and it becomes very engaging just in terms of get from plot point a to plot point b and move the story along but do it in a way that's also just like intrinsically cinematic this is kind of what i was talking about earlier when it's like okay well you know you've got this idea you've got this story how do you make this into something that works for film how do you make this a movie why is this a movie as opposed to something else and the palma always gets this but maybe never more so than in this particular film i have a few examples for that but i mean first of all you you've watched this for the first time andrew did that kind of sense did those kind of elements of the film come across to you in a way that is i mean just kind of natural um did they occur to you at all I mean, my experience is they're there and you you get kind of what's happening. Um, you don't have to really kind of lose yourself in the subtext, of, but you get what's happening without it taking you out of the film itself. Yeah, I think that my best way of translating that into how I felt as a first-time viewer is that we often talk about a character being a proxy for the audience, but in from that standpoint, the character might be kind of like out of the loop in a world that they don't understand, whereas from Travolta's standpoint, you're just going through the process with him. I think based on what you're saying, like when you're talking about him syncing the film up with the, the photographs and that sort of thing. So that definitely does make sense to me hearing you describe it. It's not necessarily something that'll stand out to you as you're viewing it though. It just, I think it just seems like well executed plotting and like uh, the meticulous nature about how John goes about his work and in this case what he's trying to unravel he's someone that I think is very good at his job despite the the rung of the ladder that he's reached mm-hmm. and that that really comes across so it, it's it's that way too and it's just character building I think we're learning about the character as we go through this journey with him and like you're saying we aren't behind the characters and we're getting these little uh, nuggets along the way and, and it feels well paced yeah, and the character work, what seems like character work, what seems just like a profession and jobs to send the character on to advance the plot, uh, comes back on every occasion in this movie to actually be a key piece of plot. Like, uh, this is the kind of detail, the layering that is there. There are things that you think is just like, oh, that's a good scene. That's, you know, introducing us that gets from point A to point B again, and it's going to set the story in motion or, you know, give us a better sense of who Jack is as a character. It's actually doing more than that. And that's kind of a a key theme throughout is you watch this film and you're watching it as a scene by scene progression as only at the end. And I mean, you really are left at the end with a holy shit. Like that's what it was doing all along. That's what the movie was working on. That's what the Palma was doing to me with all of those little choices, all of those decisions was to build to that point where something you think is kind of a throwaway isn't a throwaway at all. It's actually a brutal kind of blow. We'll get into the specifics of the structure on that just a little bit later. But to actually kind of dive into this idea of making like the audience active, making it an active viewing experience, the Palma has often over the years talked about um both editing and shot choice as kind of a tool that can be the ruin of a film and the ruin of any kind of bad director 
Because every time you make a cut or every time you make a decision about what kind of shot you're going to use, you're essentially saying to your audience, look here, look here, ignore everything that's over on this part of the frame. I want you to look here. If you're cutting to say like an insert shot and you're, if you're going from a wide shot to a tighter framing, you're saying, okay, here's the full picture, but I now want you to focus here. Forget about what you just saw. This is where you're looking. And while this is the the filmmaker's ultimate tool, this is the control that any director has. And this is what really, you know, makes the best directors what they are. It's what makes their movies what they often are. It's also something that can lead to a kind of hand-holding. It can force the audience to switch off. And it can fall into a kind of space where the director isn't making as kind of challenging or intelligent work in their own right and over the course of his career De Palma has employed a number of different visual techniques mostly and in this film there are some aural techniques too but mostly visual techniques to combat that so one is split screen I mean no one needs split screen explained to them you're probably more used to seeing it in like sports broadcasting uh, than you are in movies it's not common at all in movies or in you know scripted television but De Palma will frequently stage not even necessarily like two interconnected pieces of action in his movie side by side in a split screen effect. It does happen sometimes in Blow, for example, there is a phone call, um, which is, I think, one of the more common mainstream uses of split screen in the movie is often, you know, a phone call, one person on one side of the screen, the other on the other side. So we can see both sides of it. You're bringing people from two different geographical locations into the one shot without having to cut back and forth between both every time. But De Palma will also use it in a way that is much more, I guess, detached from that. That's much more challenging and stimulating for a viewer because you're watching two different things and you have to make a decision of which do I watch, what's most important, or actually do I need to watch both of these things. That's split screen. Something that can also have that effect, not necessarily with a lot of other filmmakers, but certainly when how the Palma use is split diopter. So we mentioned this a few moments ago. A split diopter is essentially an effect where you're using a piece of lens glass that has what is essentially a split down the middle of it, so that when the camera is looking at a scene, rather than regularly with a with any kind of even like if you had a good DSLR camera, you'll have your depth of field. And a lot of cameras, certainly smaller cameras, have a very shallow depth of field. So something that's close to the camera, you'll focus in, great, it's nice and sharp. Everything else in the background is out of focus. This is something that we just kind of, it's ingrained in our brains, we see it, we understand it. With a split diopter, what you get is you get two points either side of the center of your frame that are completely in focus. This makes a really unusual, sometimes cartoonish effect where you can have something really close to the camera be completely in focus and you can have something way, way back. I mean, a long distance back, as is the case in this movie, and it's also completely in focus. In this film, not really in any other De Palma film, and I think this is part of what makes this his best film and what makes the choices so considered. I'll be curious for your thoughts on this, but there are moments, I think, in this movie where... Certainly watching for the first time, someone may not be sure if they're looking at a split screen image or if it is, in fact, the one shot. 
To give you an example, and maybe people listening for reference, take, for example, when Travolta is out and he's recording sound in the field at the start of the movie before the blowout happens, and we get the incredible shot of the owl. When you looked at the shot of the owl, did you, one, I know you noticed that that is a very weird shot, it's very striking. Like, the first thing that probably enters anyone's mind is, that's so artificial, there's something weird going on here. But did you, at that point, maybe your knowledge go, oh, he's using a split diopter, or did you say, that's split screen, particularly because we've already seen some split screen up to that point? I think for me, someone with the rudimentary knowledge of this sort of thing, it was, I, I know what he's doing there, but I don't remember what it is. And it's definitely visually striking. I don't I don't know if my mind went, is it split diopter or is it split screen? But it's definitely something that stands out to you while you're watching it, even if you're a novice from that standpoint. Okay. And to get to the point of that, and particularly when we talk about, you know, why is this, what is this as a thriller? And if this is a conspiracy thriller, why does the tools that the director employ, like, why do they matter? Why do they do anything for it? I think for me, the thing is, like, if you play with a split diopter like that, the the best example in the movie for this might be the opening scene where Travolta is at work in his office and we see him kind of off at his desk and we see the kind of tapes laid out and everything in the background. And right up in the foreground, we have the TV screen and we have a news bulletin playing out. And the two things are completely in focus. So as an audience member, normally you'd be just watching one or the other. You'd be like, oh, I know someone's in the background, but he's blurred out. So I'm watching this TV screen. This is what I'm being told is important. Or that's the TV. The TV's on the background. The character isn't even watching that. So I should be watching him. I don't need to look at that. Where what actually happens here is both things are in focus. And as much as it may not be apparent at the time, it's because both things are important. What's happening on the TV is actually detailing um, what will happen a few moments later. Um, it's introducing the character that will be central a few moments later. It's also setting up the events that will lead to the climax of the movie. It's setting up another character in terms of uh, the reporter who's on the screen. He will figure in the movie later. So you've got all these kind of key plot details that from the very first scene are right in front of your eyes. And they're on a TV that the character isn't watching. And where this is really interesting for a conspiracy movie is you've got this idea of, you know, what's going on in the background, what's going on in the foreground. What do people notice? What do people see? What's what's just there for people to see? And what's maybe happening below the surface out of sight? And right from the beginning, De Palma takes the thing which should be the background. Like, we all do this, you know, people put TVs on, a movie on, whatever, as background noise. And he's taking that and he's putting that front and center, but he's not letting you just focus on that. He's saying, what's down here is also important. This is all important. You're in the movie. And this is, as he puts it, it's his kind of version of recreating the kind of deep focus effect that was made famous in Citizen Kane, where basically the kind of cameras that directors in the 70s didn't get to use anymore. And with the kind of scale of sets they used to use, you could get a much kind of wider frame and you could operate with, large large spaces fully in focus and for the palma it's a case of you know whenever i can do it why not have everything in focus why not use the full frame and use different parts of it to tell my audience different pieces of information and with the subject of this film i think it's never been kind of more perfectly suited that signature of his style to his content because he's getting to play with the idea of 
you know, what an audience would normally ignore or what's right in front of your face, but you don't have you don't have the context, so you don't notice it. So right from the beginning, the movie and how the movie is being captured is feeding into what its core idea is. And that is something that's a little bit different. And it might be something that for most people they're not gonna get it till they watch it second time round, because you're not programmed to seeing that every time you fire up a movie. Yeah, that's definitely not something that that I would have been going into my first viewing thinking about that, but that just goes back to to what I said about the intent with with every aspect of this movie, with every camera shot, with every placement of anything, and that that's the type of thing that I think makes filmmaking an art rather than a science, especially when in in this case. I wanted to point out as well that something that's that stuck out to me from the beginning we might get into this later so if you need to edit around this that's fine one of the things that i think has been more of a modern trend i think in television filmmaking is kind of a a meta aspect with, mm-hmm. within movies and we can and do this bit now by the way because yeah we're i want to talk about beginning and ending which is you're going to the beginning part of this right yeah absolutely so uh i mean it, it's it strikes you from right away maybe if you're not noticing the things that you mentioned there with uh, all the characters and aspects of the plot that will come into play later the the first thing that jumps out to you is is when we're introduced to this movie uh we're actually not introduced to this movie would be the best way to say it it's a movie in a movie type scenario as we mentioned uh jack terry is that his name that's correct I kept wanting to call him John Terry for obvious reasons, but uh, so sorry about that. Well, Jack and John, I mean, in a movie that has very JFK vibes too, I understand you've obviously got John Travolta as well, so I'll forgive all of this. I appreciate that. But we we get a a long tracking shot of one of these... Not, not a tracking shot. I'm going to, just on this, I'm going to interrupt you because this is actually, it's one of the the more significant technical elements of this movie and it's also i guess it's important in not being a tracking shot because it's as you're gonna kind of get into like we're we start with a film within a film that's meant to look a little bit bad or it's certainly supposed to have a very distinct style it's one of the first instances one of the very early instances of steadicam used on film uh, which is why you get this kind of more than just a tracking shot, you get this free roving quality, this genuine point of view sense. But worth pointing out is it was shot by Garrett Brown. Um, he was the camera operator just for that scene. He came to film that sequence specifically, and he is the inventor of Steadicam. So Steadicam is something that is just kind of like, again, people may not necessarily know exactly what it is in terms of how it works as a stabilizer um, for a camera. But they're certainly familiar with what it looks like. It is so central to everything you consume media-wise today. Like, basically everything in traditional media, you're going to have some Steadicam shots in there. And this is the guy who invented it actually shot that sequence. So sorry to cut across you, but I just think that's a detail we'll point out. Yeah, I would I would not have known that that particular genre of that <laughs> filming technique was not a Steadicam, or uh, not a uh, tracking shot. Basically... The reason I thought that is where go like following these women around what looks to be a sorority house mm-hmm. um, in in one of these I I want to call it a B movie a B horror movie but it's really more of a C movie it's 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 lowbrow it's also very Halloween I think uh, Halloween came out not long before this and I 
I don't know. I don't know what De Palma's view of John Carpenter was at that time, or it really is since. I I would think it's it's actually okay, his opinion of him, but there's a similarity there, right? You see that too, like, very much so, even in terms of the character that we're talking about. Just the volumes turned up on it a little bit in terms right. of uh, the scantily clad women and uh i i like i don't even know what's going on in that living room where the when the one woman's trying to study like I, it, where are the dance parties uh like that breaking out and <laughs> am i invited but anyway so we we see a movie within a movie a horror movie within this within this thriller and i think what's so interesting and obviously intentional as we get introduced to more characters and introduced in the plot is they're, they're almost developed into a horror movie within the movie when we get introduced to John Lithgow's character. And obviously that comes back into play towards the end. But I just thought that was one of the mo- more successful kind of aspects of slipping in a meta filmmaking kind of wink wink to the audience. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. There's like there's a key element of that. This is a staple for the Palma whenever he talks about movies. Uh, one of the things he really feels passionately about is he hates like establishing shots. He hates geographical shots and he feels most passionate about this in terms of how you start a movie. And I have to say, I, it's something I didn't necessarily always give that much thought to, but he's right. Like you're starting a movie. You want to get someone invested straight away. Come up with a good beginning. People always think of the ending, but come up with a good and clever beginning that really introduces your movie, introduces your world. And he kind of does a bait and switch here uh, because he drops you into it. And even like now, I was thinking about this earlier when I was watching it, having recommended it and even having spoke to some people about it ahead of this podcast. And then I was kind of like, they're, they're going to be like, this isn't the movie Adam was talking about. If I put the wrong thing on here when there's just like scantily clad women dancing around and there's this kind of Michael Myers style figure stalking through corridors peering through windows and the palme is having fun with this because of course what it really is is jack travolta's character along with this director producer at the company he works they are screening a part of a movie they are working on and the whole setup is they're in the middle of the sound mix and they get to a psycho-esque shower scene where the killer brings out the knife and the actress's scream is terrible it is beyond terrible they need to find the right scream and it's kind of right like when you watch this i think one it's a funny scene when you come out the other side of it right yeah and it was a lot for like 7 a.m or whenever i started (laughs) well that's on you but it's a it's a scene where you come out and you're like okay that's clever and that's pretty funny and it's straight away you're introduced to it, but you just kind of you move past it because you're like, oh, that what a what a clever way to introduce that this guy uh, works in movies, he works in sound, and also to set into motion, oh, he's going to be out there, and when he observes this, he's out there because he has to get sounds for this, and you know you've got it all in motion, great. And then, and I am going to jump right to the end here because just because it's come up at this point, I think you can't talk about the beginning of this movie without talking about the end. And we have some more stuff to talk about. There's a bit more style stuff I want to talk about. We'll talk about the performances as well before we wrap. But to me, this is one of the all-time great movie endings. 
it might be my favorite of all time but i i just think in an objective sense i i would struggle to see how anyone picks at this as an ending like it's it's very very strong very very impactful but beyond that in line with like the kind of detail that's put to okay why are we making certain technical decisions for this story and for these shots it is also like perfectly plotted out and crafted because it ties right back to that opening scene because at the end of the movie we have I mean, I won't even go into all of the details of it because, like, the scale is colossal. There's a lot going on. A lot has gone on that we're not gonna we're not gonna talk through the whole movie. But we have a climactic murder scene, and Travolta is hearing this in his ear at the time, having wired up Nancy Allen's character, and it's this kind of horrid thing, just in terms of the relationship, the story that's built up. You're like wow, that's a really horrible way for this to pan out. And then we kind of cut to a snowy day and Travolta's sitting on the bench and he's listening back to the tape from this day. And you're like, okay, this is pretty dark. And then we start to hear kind of overlapping audio and we transition back to the screening room. And it's the scene. It's the scene we opened up with. It's the scene that you know, throughout the film, every now and then, almost as like comic relief, we get these moments where um, there'll be two women in and they're taking turns pulling each other's hair to see which one could scream better and if one of the screams is suitable. Or there's like uh, three women in a waiting room to see if they could be the scream and they all like kind of do-re-mi, like one, two, three, just you scream, you scream, you scream. And it's like, no, it's none of them, move on. And it kind of gets peppered in to the point where you're like, yeah, cool. Only for the film to end up with that the the right scream for the movie, the movie within the movie was the scream of anguish, uh, the real life last scream for the character that Travolta's character has fallen in love with in the movie. And it is brutal. And I think it's brutal just because you didn't realize that whole tread of the story was building up to anything impactful because it shouldn't. And then it has one of my all time favorite line readings. And I think the best piece of acting of Travolta's career, certainly that I've seen, which is as the camera very slowly pans around him and it's he's smoking. So we get this kind of smoky, uh, dry kind of looking atmosphere. There's beads of sweat coming down his face. He's in the screening room and he's being backlit by the projector light. And he's not even kind of not even responding to the director or producer who is thrilled because they've got the scream. And how do you get this? I want more of this. Turn the scream up louder. You've just got Travolta kind of muttering to himself. It's a good scream. It's a good scream. Quite clearly a broken man. And to me, I just think from setting up a beginning and then closing on that note, not having it in any way that you're feeling... You know, it's not like, oh, I should be careful of spoilers here when I'm talking about beginnings and endings. Um, without giving any details. Oh, no, I shouldn't even do that. There are movies where there'll be the end will be at the beginning. There is a, the Palmer movie that does this. And it's not really a secret. It's just like, this is how the movie ends. And it's not something that's that uncommon. You see it, we'll get sort of even part of the story. And it's about working our way back to that. This isn't that, though. And I've rarely 
if ever seen something pieced together in quite the way it is. And I think the emotional impact of it, regardless of even how someone maybe feels about the overall movie, I will actually, I will talk to your brother Jordan about this at some point, just to say, well, what about the ending? What do you think about the ending? Because I just think the ending is a good punch on like few others. Uh, I I think he does like the ending. We've talked about that. He said, do you mean the very end of the last few scenes? And I said, the very end. And he goes, yeah, that's a great ending. I it's it's up. I got some recency bias going on, but it it's up there with with Shoreberg uh, before uh, sunset and uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire for me. I think it's an absolutely like like you said, a gut punch of an ending. And something that I think going going into that repeat viewing, every time you're in a scene where, you know, we're, we're getting that comic relief with the women screaming and this the director, whoever he, Travolta works with, is just like frantically trying to figure things out while Travolta is just completely uninterested in anything that's going on with him because he's focused on uh, the blowout conspiracy, for lack of a better phrase. I'll wrap it up into that. And yeah, on that repeat viewing, I imagine all those scenes are tempered with a little bit more of uh, foreboding. Yeah, it's it's something that I, I think just on top of being entertaining and kind of it's I find it a very satisfying ending. Now, this is, I think, part of why it didn't do well is it's a very grim ending. And a lot of people don't seem to respond to movies in this way. This is like when we talk about uh, ambiguous endings as opposed to things being tied up neatly. Things are tied up neatly here. But I think a lot of people who like things to be tied up neatly probably finished this movie and was like, yeah, I would have preferred if that was ambiguous because that ending was not happy and that is not what I was here for. But I, I think just even on like an intellectual level, like I don't know if we've mentioned this point, the Palm also wrote this script. He was the sole screenwriting credit on this. And that hasn't always been the case in his career. He's often worked with writers, a lot of notable writers and um to great results and often to very poor results as well that has that has played out. But just like intellectually, when I think of sitting down to write anything ever, I this is a beginning and an ending that I just can't wrap my head around being able to come up with something like that. I just think it's completely mind-blowing how well executed it is, how well conceived it was to begin with, and how, like with all the other things the movie does, you're not really, you're never at any point thinking of that as if it has any significance until it's come back to just be like one of the most crushing things you could imagine in any movie. I think that cynical end note also perfectly aligns with the tone of the rest of the movie. And like we talked about with the fugitive before, I, I don't, I think it was jumping all over the place and didn't know what it wanted to be. Whereas De Palma knew what he wanted this to be the entire time. And the ending sticks the landing. Yeah, very much. I also, I think, again, that is because you're using, you're using the audio, you're using the visual elements, and you've got such a bombastic visual scene. Like, the scale of this is insane. Like, there's some fascinating details. I don't know how much reading you've done about this, or, I mean, I've watched close to every documentary there is available on this movie, so I know all of the ins and outs of it. But just as an example, and again, this is, I hope, I hope people are listening uh have watched this beforehand one because if not we've just talked about an all-time great ending and i i don't know maybe it still lands but i don't know but also just to get a sense of something like this so you know like the even before the final kind of liberty day right that's what it is um fireworks display all of that before the climactic scene if you got like the chase the car chase through the streets of philadelphia you know that right did that jeep have brakes 
I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> what I do know is this movie is famous for in the editing and the mixing stage, uh, 15 reels of film were stolen from the production. So a lot of the streets of Philadelphia full of crowds was what was stolen, has never been recovered. So either like someone just didn't know what it was, thought it was funny. The panel thinks it was some kids just took this stuff and then like threw it in the trash somewhere. Um, or whether someone knew exactly what it was and has like a whole lot of the original negative of blowout stashed in their basement. I don't know what the answer is. But 15... That'll be on Criterion within a month, Adam, so we're good. <laughs> 15 reels of it were stolen, so they had to reshoot. And they had to reshoot large portions of the movie. Like, cast-wise, everyone came back. There were some crew changes. Like, Lazo Kovacs, a very famous cinematographer, he came to film because Vilma Sigmund, who shot the majority of the movie, or the whole movie, first time around, I guess the way you could put it, um, he had other commitments at that point. But the way the Palma puts it is that you know, he certainly, I don't think he puts it as like this great blessing, but there was such goodwill from the film community as in like, this is a disaster. This is the worst thing that can happen that the scale of a lot of those crowd scenes actually grew a lot bigger second time around. And this is a movie that wasn't made for a lot of money. It was made for $18 million, but 9 million of that was marketing budget. Um, And they did get some insurance money when a significant portion of the movie was stolen after being completed. But one of the things that's really striking is just how big this film is. Like, even in a, compared to The Fugitive, which is a big movie with a big budget and, like, set pieces, like, the climactic set pieces in Blowout, like, they are real fireworks. They are real fireworks being timed and being positioned to go off in certain spots in the frame. Like, and they're lighting a massive space outdoor, like a colossal space. The Palma talks about how, um, the space was so big that when they went to shoot the first time, uh, Vilma Sigmund, the cinematographer, was like, I, I don't have to do this. This is so big that they spent all night lighting it. And by the time it was lit, the sun had come up and they couldn't shoot anything. But it's like the scale is insane for some of this. That is really striking. And I think particularly in a CGI age, because it's easy to look at stuff like that and be like, oh, yeah, movies do that stuff all the time. Well, it's not a big deal to put CGI fireworks in. Well, that's not what's happened here at all. This hasn't been lit in post-production on like After Effects. This is this has been lit in the moment. So I think there's some kind of crazy, uh, really interesting stuff about this film from that perspective too. One thing I want to just kind of wrap up because we've talked a lot about style and I've talked about a lot of De Palma's ideas. Uh, maybe I've fascinated some people. I'm sure I've bored plenty of others. But I want to play a very short clip. Uh, this comes from an interview that Noah Baumbach did with De Palma Baumbach and De Palma have a very close relationship at this point. Um, they had an hour-long conversation for, I believe it was for the Criterion Collection edition of Blowout. Uh, certainly it's on the disc, and when it was on the Criterion channel recently, it was available there. But this actual special feature is available on YouTube. Um, it's like the making of Blowout with Brian De Palma or something. You'll find it on there. But I want to play a short clip of this. It's a question Baumbach asks him about Hitchcock and how Hitchcock stages movies. But I think for us and just the conversation we've had, it kind of circles us back to some of the points I was making about The Fugitive. I think some of the points then that I've since made about Blowout. And I think it informs something interesting about movies, something that was core to someone like Hitchcock and has carried over to someone like De Palma and is certainly there for all to see in Blowout. So 
Let's just take a quick listen. You have to think about what is something, when you're dealing in a certain medium, what is the thing that is best done in that form? I mean, obviously, if you're directing a play on stage, dialogue, character is paramount, because you're sitting in the you know, audience looking, and you have to choreograph the people on stage from basically an audience's point of view. When you're, make, when, when, when you're making a movie, you have all kinds of, of, of things that you can explore. And what Hitchcock discovered, well, which, well, first is the point of view shot, which is you know, the idea of somebody walking or looking, and then you showing what they see, and, you, and the audience member identifies with the character, whether it be Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant or whoever, whoever it might be, Janet Leigh, and what they are seeing. And this is how we experience life through points of view shots, which, uh, as we talked about once before, in computer games, which are all sometimes old point of view shots, where you really go through the space and explore it from your point of view. So, and what's unique to cinema, unlike any other art form, is that you can show the audience and your character the same piece of information. They see what the character's saying. So you digest that point of view. It's, it's, it's unique to cinema. So a lot of things Hitchcock discovered, which I talk about the grammar of cinema, this is one of the basic building blocks. You know, you'll always know it's Hitchcock when somebody's walking up, like going up to the, you know, the, the creepy house on the hill in Psycho, you know. He's tracking, looking at the house, tracking, looking at the house. You know, puts you in the character's head. Um, instead of objectifying it, you know, getting, seeing the character walk up to the house. Okay, so part of why I wanted to play that, and there's probably quite a few who are like, you should have played that at the start, and it would have saved you talking a lot. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is true, but it's, it's kind of getting into just some of the key elements that are at play in the film, which is, like, how do you make this an active viewing experience? And it is, it's the same kind of point of view shots you see in Vertigo. And what I think is interesting in our broader kind of conversation here, like there's a scene in The Fugitive and I watched The Fugitive, I have to say, before I rewatched or even really started to think about Blowout again today for this episode. There's a scene in The Fugitive quite late on. I actually think it's just before he goes up onto uh, whatever the train is, like the train platform. And he's kind of climbing some stairs and he's being tailed. And we've got this shot and it's like, it has them in profile. It's from the side and we're seeing Harrison Ford go up and out of shot. And there's a guy tailing him and he's kind of slowly going up. And at that time I was like, this is the moment to bring tension in. This is the moment to go uh, something close to point of view, if not straight point of view, and have like a real kind of a mystery-esque tailing shot. Like this is 101 suspense. This is what Hitchcock does in all of his movies, and it didn't do it. And that's something to me then when we then pivot onto and we're talking about blowout, it's just it's these kind of really basic things that I think as a viewer, like they're just they're so baked into the language of not just film, but of like visual mediums. Like we just inherently understand edits at this point. It's like it's like a blink of our eye. That is how an edit is perceived by humans we see whether it's in movies or on tv from a very young age now kids on phones and on ipads they interact with visual mediums and it all just becomes something that's 
just it's completely natural we don't even have to think about how we're taking this in but there's just certain simple tricks um point of view shots would be one split screen is another the way split diopter plays with perspective and with what's foreground and what's backgrounded that i think they're core to all of the palmas work they're core really to what most great filmmakers think about when they construct every single shot in their movie but they're also they're the elements that when you really kind of dive into a film they're what stands out and they're often what elevates a movie to a different level not just from like i'm gonna stand off and i'm gonna say this movie's great because it uses split diopter that's not the point the point is that you can say well this movie is great because of how a certain shot makes me feel or the impact it has the impact a certain decision has it's not necessarily the technique that matters but it's that the filmmaker has kind of put the thought into why am I doing this? What am I going to do to get what I need from the audience with this particular shot, with this particular scene, with this particular choice? I think Blowout is a really great example of like a director going very close to like 100 out of 100 on all of those decisions. But again, that's just me, Andrew. Yeah, to me, that that little segment between him and Noah Baumbach. First of all, Noah Baumbach steering into this hairstyle and, you know, it's working for him more than it should for a man of his age. So good for him. But I think what De Palma kind of latches onto there as well is like you have, as a filmmaker, you have the ability to control what your audience sees and there's power in that. And Mm -hmm. you're able to, I don't want to say manipulate, but to an extent manipulate how someone is viewing your movie based on what they're looking at. I mean, that's like it's you entirely said, it's, your job. That's entirely yeah, your job. It, if you're the director, if you're not thinking of it like that, if you're just pointing the camera, it's like you're you're missing the point, but you're also missing a real opportunity. Like I actually, there was a quote I jotted down. I, I can't remember where I I came across it earlier. It might have been from that same interview, but I just have a note of it here, and it's like. The Palma saying the position of the camera is just as important as what you photograph. I think it was in relation to one of my favorite shots of all time, which is in the middle of this movie when Jack's tapes have all been erased and he's frantically going around the room, checking them all. And the camera is just constantly circling. The camera is in constant motion and we're getting all of these incredible new sounds added in as he checks from one thing to the other. And it's a really intense, paranoid experience. But that's the like that's a classic example of that. It's like, what do you where do you put your camera? What do you do with it? Like that's if it says on a page, Jack goes into his office, all his tapes have been erased, he checks them all. Like, what is the fugitive version of that scene? <laughs> like he goes from one to the other and he checks them and we're there for a you know 90 seconds and then it just moves on and we've got to frantically move the plot forward because there's nothing you know there's nothing exciting about that like that's that's not how you build purpose or suspense in a movie it's like how can i make this moment that is important but isn't obviously visually exciting how do i make that visually exciting how do i make that something that the audience cares about or pays attention to or remembers and i I think that's the kind of thing that works really well in this movie and to jump off of that to a really non-philosophical or intelligent point, it also just looks a shit ton better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, visually, some of the shots in Blowout are are stunning. Like the the scene that was referenced in this in this link. If you if you were ever so lucky, 
dear listener is to go watch that, that entire clip we get a scene of i guess it's john lithgow following uh someone that he thinks is nancy allen through um, the fish through, market through the fish market and we get this split diopter or split screen you you would have to tell me which it That's is the split diopter of, andrew of him grabbing uh like a mini little ice pick out of the out of the fish uh tank not tank but like the fish ice bucket while she's walking away from that split diopter and then we have the perspective of him following her and i mean that just that whole sequence just looks amazing mm-hmm. and i can't think of a single scene in the fugitive where i would say the same thing and i that's the difference in really thinking about what you want your audience to see and just making a movie Absolutely. Okay, let's let's get to our final part of this, and that is to just let's talk about something that we would talk about a whole lot more, I guess, if there wasn't so much just in terms of the filmmaking and really what this movie's doing overall. And that's the performances and the the actors and actresses. I mentioned Travolta, and I, I gave some kind of background to this earlier, but what was your? I mean, you didn't know anything maybe about this before I started annoying you about it quite a while back. So at some point, you will look this up, and you've probably will have had a reaction along the lines of John Travolta? Am I right on that? Like, what when you start this movie up, were you expecting something entirely different just based on Travolta being the lead? I mean, I really had no expectations. Okay. Uh, but I did, I did very little research into this. I saw, so initially when we were discussing this, part of me thought maybe Tra- Travolta's like a, a, a supporting actor in this movie. But then I... I'm loading it up onto Amazon Prime, and he's on the cover. So, oh, it's it's Travolta and Nancy Allen's names on the marquee. This is going to be a Travolta-led vehicle. And, I mean, I didn't know how I felt about that. Like, there are some good John Travolta performances that in existence, but his career has taken just kind of a, a turn where there's blips on the radar that are really great, and then the rest of it's like at least you scratching your head. Yeah, the blips but, are the good stuff. That's compared to most people where the blips could be the bad things. The blips for Travolta are the good things. Yes, the blips are the blowouts and the cult and the pulp fictions. Uh, let me clarify there. Uh, they're good blips, great blips. But I thought he's absolutely perfect for this role, and it's a standout performance in his career. I would put it up there with pulp fiction. I mean, there's a there's a casual cool that young John Travolta had that he carries through the beginning of this movie that sort of translates into a frantic frazzled eventually broken man and he he plays every note perfectly depending on where he is in that development um I mean I think this for the most part I think this ensemble cast not really an ensemble but like the the people that fill around the edges I think it's a very well cast and a very well acted movie save one performance that I don't necessarily haven't responded too well do it yeah i'm i'm not a fan of nancy allen's performance in this movie i think it's it's just kind of a throwaway character honestly i think that's a problem with the way roles for women have been written for ever (laughs) i guess would be the best way of saying that uh maybe upon further viewings i would kind of see a little bit more intent from De Palma that I didn't pick up on the first viewing. Do you know what, just, I'm very curious on this, you'll get why in a minute if you don't already know. Do you know much about Nancy Allen? Uh, I know little about her other than that she was married to De Palma and has uh, gotten some uh, dubious award nominations for awards you maybe don't want to be nominated for in the past. The first part was what I was talking about and she was married to him at the time of this film and 
he didn't want her to do this film. She's in this film because Travolta wanted Nancy Allen in the film. And the reason that Palmer didn't want her in the film is because he didn't want her to be someone who was going to become defined by, oh, she's in her husband's movie again. Because where both her and Travolta really broke on the scene was in Carrie as supporting characters. And they were a couple in Carrie. They had really good chemistry. They put in two great performances. And that carries over here. And I'm going to disagree with you because I think she's doing some things that are actually really subtle at times. I'm not saying this is the the best written female character ever. It's not. That's going to be a feature of 99.9% of 70s and 80s movies, if not even 99.9% of 2020s movies. But in this particular case, the character is introduced to us as a kind of very ditzy, almost airheaded character where you're like, this is not doing anything for her. Where we do learn as it goes on, part of that is an act on her part. She is playing dumb for a reason. And certainly something on further viewing that I've come to appreciate is some of the very kind of subtle but knowing glances and looks and moments when she'll like kind of jump into a line of dialogue or certain gestures I think it's a really great piece of physical acting from her and the one thing I'd say first and foremost and the reason I think the performance is actually really really good and is vital to the movie is this is Travolta's movie and Travolta is like just the essence of cool in this movie and he really carries it in so many ways. And with that, we've got to believe that like he's going to do all that he eventually does, and he's going to do that for her, and that the the end point of this movie is believable. And their chemistry is incredibly real. <laughs> and the fact that the Paula or the fact that Travolta requested to the Palma that she be in the movie, I find interesting on that front. And the moment even that I think, and if you watch it again, which I hope you will at some point, the scene that I would say to you to do it, and it's the moment it comes across. And I think once you once you like look closely at that scene, you see it. I can't unsee it anywhere else. Just the kind of simmering chemistry between them is when they're in the hospital very early in the movie, just after he has rescued her. And she's kind of... <laughs> Nancy Allen's kind of doing a weird thing. She's kind of muttering. Like, I don't know if she's been given some kind of drugs or if she's just traumatized. That is a part of the performance. I don't know exactly what the decision is there. But they start to talk and Travolta says to her, oh, you're you're really beautiful without all that mud on your face. And the Palma makes this incredible cut. And we go to from what's like a medium long shot. We're seeing almost like kind of a full shot of them in the room. We go to a close-up on Nancy Allen's face as she kind of puts her hand over her face and she starts laughing. And when she takes her hand down, like, her smile and her eyes are, like, twinkling in her head and we cut to Travolta and it's the same thing. And, like, this is the very early stages of these two people meeting and the chemistry is very real in the movie. And that obviously stems from a real chemistry that they had outside of that and from having worked before. So 
I look there you could have gone other ways with it I think it's a very distinctive performance but it's one that I I actually do think is really really good it was very well received at the time even better than Travolta's performance in some quarters um, in some kind of original reviews that I read Uh, but I, I actually think it's got a level of nuance that's kind of easy to overlook because her character is not played in a way where you're kind of assuming there's great depths there. I, I actually think the character has more of that there, and it may be because she's playing it, but you do have to look for it. Again, that's where repeat viewing comes in, because I think for, from a first time viewing, I think the perform or the performance or the character, we'll call it, uh, I think I'm more receptive to it as it goes throughout the movie. And as, as we learn more about her and her involvement and everything, um yeah it's just it wasn't my favorite part of the movie can can i dig into one thing that my brother didn't like about this that i vehemently d- disagree with before we before we sign off here give me the ammunition for when jordan's next on perfect one of the <laughs> things that he he was not a fan of was john lithgow's performance and i i can kind of see why but i think that in the as it develops into he's the horror villain essentially I think that's a pitch perfect, creepy white guy who is arrogant and robotic and maybe a sociopath. I think it's pitch perfect. He's cunning, he's manipulative, and he's creepy as fuck. I I think it's a great performance, especially with the backdrop of someone that's that's my age that maybe hasn't seen as many 70s or 80s movies as, as he should have. And I view John Lithgow as like, america's kooky or not kooky but like america's fun uncle kind of a situation did you ever watch dexter uh, i did so that's the first time that that facade was ripped away right it, it's, a ter- me, it's a terrible show that he oh, was great in it was good early it was good early and it was actually four seasons and then trash yeah i'm not, I'm not talking about the end of it he was season two if i remember correctly maybe season one four. was he four i think uh, anyway it was still good when he was in it would be yes would be where i put it he's he's where i draw the line he is playing a variation of this character in dexter but what jordan may not realize yet and what may mean it's just best if jordan doesn't dive deeper into the palma i'm not sure if he wants to do that anyway and what might mean that that's a worthwhile exercise for you is john lickow plays characters very similar to this in fact more deranged uh, more evil on occasion in every appearance he makes and he is a frequent collaborator um raising cane and obsession are two to jump out to me straight away where uh we'll just say big john licka performances they're very big andrew i, I love that i, I think i, I was here i think he's I was really good it. at it though like he's he's a fantastic character actor like i think some of the things that he's doing they are the they are the parts of the movie that whole character and that tread of the story is it at its most absurd, um. Yet it it is again it's based in it's not De Palma didn't pull that from anywhere, um. He is like he is obsessed with, I think generally conspiracy maybe not Oliver Oliver Stone level but he was obsessed with the JK, JFK assassination, um. He claims to have read close to everything that was ever written about the jfk assassination he's also a colossal fan of conspiracy movies uh that i'm blanking on the name there's a costa gavros movie that he alluded to where that is kind of like that storyline of you know you've got to kill multiple people 
you've got a hit on, you know, if you want to kill one person, make them the third person you kill and make it look like a series of things, which seems completely absurd, but he's not pulling that kind of stuff from from nowhere. That's that's actually rooted in something. Um, both in terms of well, I won't say fact, in it's rooted in conspiracy and it's also rooted in the history of conspiracy cinema. But yeah, th- that whole character and the whole strand of storyline is the film at its most outlandish. Personally, and obviously I'm just a colossal fan of the film, I think it gets away with it. But it is it is something different and I understand that that is where people are going to take a break on it. But I, I do love like when he's in the phone booth and he's just switching all these voices around like he is a really great actor. I don't think that's a secret. Everyone knows that. But it's kind of great to see him get to flex those chops in that kind of way. This, I will say, is not a dissimilar performance to Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. It's the same kind of energy. I I I can see that, and I agree a hundred percent. So we'll argue with Jordan on a future podcast or a future pre podcast. We won't subject him to like a public shaming sort of a situation. Oh, well, speak for yourself. We... I may shame him publicly listen here's the thing about before sunset also you're shamed (laughs) okay i think that's enough for this episode we've gone long as we usually do we've gone very deep on these movies um we're gonna we're gonna pick up not on blowout just yet we'll we'll see when jordan comes on we're gonna pick up though with another one of these movie swaps next week not quite as kind of smooth and seamless a connection i don't know Maybe we'll find, this is the thing, when you watch the two of them, maybe you'll find the kind of, the common treads that we'll then start to pick at in a much kind of bigger picture sense. But I guess in broad strokes, we can say we're going to talk about two comedies next week. So, Andrew, you can go first. What is the comedy you have picked for me? The cult classic about uh, corporate monotony, Office Space. I have not seen Office Space. I have deep shame about that and i'm very looking forward to seeing it i just hope i like it i really hope i like it my pick for you is the hal ashby classic being there starring one of the all-time great performances from peter sellers a movie that is for me one of the funniest films ever but has also been talked about a lot in recent years as a kind of prescient look at what happens when people blindly follow not very bright people into big decisions and they get put up on pedestals and people follow what they do. I don't know if you have any idea what I'm getting at, Andrew, but I feel like when we watch Being There and we come back to talk about it next week, we may end up talking about some other things too because it's a film that also comes up very regularly in regard to a certain notable person in the world right now. Uh, Well, that one would all be exhausting. (laughs) I actually... I It won't be. I think try to detach that part of your brain as much as possible you will pick up on it very quickly so i'm not i'm not planting that there but detach that part of your brain and just enjoy an all-time great peter sellers performance peter sellers certainly not uh got the same kind of motivations we'll say so you don't have to worry about that part of it a much kinder so but we'll get into all of that on the next episode If you want to make sure you catch that, make sure you subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. We are pretty much everywhere. Um, All of our podcasts also get posted on our website, capturedincelluloid.com. While you can find them when they post or you can get in touch with us, 
on Twitter at Captured on Cell or on Facebook at Captured on Cellular. Until the next time, thanks all of you for listening. Andrew, thank you for joining me. It's great to be back. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be back. <laughs>